We're going to spend the summer exploring Jesus' most provocative teaching, the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember all the way back a year ago to our gathering service in the Gallagher Blue Door, and Dave gave this incredible plea to all who are listening that we would build our lives on the rock. That statement that Jesus made about building your lives on the rock of his teaching is the very ending of the Sermon on the Mount. And so this whole summer, that is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be in this series that we're calling The Race, and it is all about Jesus' most provocative and passionate teaching about how to live. And people like Gandhi, people like Martin Luther King, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer based their lives on this teaching. And we're not going to lie, this hard stuff, it's so hard that Christians through the centuries have devised ingenious ways, theological schemes that help them not ever have to live it out, which is partially why Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. It is hard, but it is good. And God's grace is the fuel to keep us going. So let me just give you a visual. If anybody of you have been here for a while, you've seen me use these photos before, but they're incredibly powerful to me. Um, So let me show you the first one. This is what it looks like to run the race on grace. This is a photo of me at mile six of the, I think it was the Drake or the Chicago Marathon. I only ran two marathons, got the exact same time in both, figured that was as good as I was going to get and quit. So that's a photo of me at mile six. I'm not flashing the photographer. I'm showing him my number. Um, That's what it looks like to run the race on grace. This is, however, running the race without grace, friends, and it is ugly. That is now a photo of me at mile 20. I think I'm trying to point and ask my sister, where's the finish line? So hopefully that sears this idea into your brain. You cannot run this race without the right fuel, and that right fuel is grace. It is not guilt. It is not fear. It is not a desire to impress your grandma. The Sermon on the Mount is found in its fullest form in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we're encouraging everyone to read these chapters of the scriptures this summer. You'll find them as you walk through our daily scriptures. We're going to run through the whole sermon twice this summer. And I want you to know that Jesus starts this sermon with a series of startling blessings. He's making announcements of God's grace toward those whom no one believed could be blessed by God. Toward those who have no hope. Those who are overwhelmed by the sadness of life. Those who are tired of and beaten down by injustice. Those who to the, to the normal eye seem to have nothing to offer to this world or to God. He offered his father's blessings to those who were on the margins of society and especially on the margins of religious society. He offered God's blessings to people who were weak and unproductive and unsuccessful and broken by life. And Jesus stood on that mount, which was really probably just a hill, and he said, my father's blessing is for you. Nothing is going to disqualify you from God's grace found in me, Jesus said. These beatitudes were announcements of startling grace. 
And I bet the people listening that day looked a little bit like the people who came to my garage sale last weekend when we told them that everything was 50 cents. You should have just seen their faces. They were incredibly startled. How is this true? This is too good. Kurt's going to spend some more time teaching the fullness of these blessings, these beatitudes later in the summer. But I wanted to start by reminding you that that's where Jesus starts. And it is no accident that Jesus started this most famous sermon, this most powerful teaching of his with blessings. A commentator that many of us are reading to help us understand this passage more fully, Frederick Dale Bruner wrote this. He said, Jesus begins significantly, not with demands, but with blessings. And this already tells us something about Jesus. He blesses before he commands. He helps before he orders. This is God's rhythm of walking with humanity. Grace before command. Blessing before challenge. It's the way God has always interacted with us. And these blessings of Jesus are then followed by Jesus teaching about how we are to live now in light of becoming recipients of that grace. And he's going to teach about becoming from the inside out a new kind of person. A person ruled not by anger or lust anymore. A person who keeps their word. Becoming the kind of person who loves deeply even those who hurt us or would be seen as our enemies. He talks about becoming the kind of person who trusts God with everything, just like the birds of the air and the flowers of the fields. And therefore, we become no longer worried all the time. We become a person who doesn't judge anyone ever. This is Jesus teaching about who every single one of us wish we could be on our best days. And I want to say this so clearly. When the people heard this teaching of Jesus, this was good news. The Sermon on the Mount, extreme grace and extreme challenge, was good news. And this is hard for us to remember, but I want to say this so clearly. The good news, the message of Jesus is not, and it never has been, If you are just good, then God will love you. And so your whole life should be be spent trying to become gooder. I know that's not a word, but I'm liking it this morning, okay? Just go with me. Your whole life should not be spent trying to become gooder to try to get God to love you. That's never been the gospel. Just be good, and God will love you. How could that even be news? I mean, how could that especially be good news to sinners? That would have been terrible news that day to the people who were sitting there listening on that mount to Jesus. It would be terrible news for you and me too. Jesus did not say, blessed are all of you who are really good. Especially blessed are you who are better than all those people around you. Blessed are you who have it all together. Blessed are you who are trying so hard to become better people. That message has never been the good news. 
And so you cannot read or hear this sermon this summer, especially the challenging parts. You cannot read it or hear it as an instruction manual on how to be good enough to get God to love you. Because if you do, wait a minute, wait a minute, go ahead and read it that way. I dare you. Find your Bible this summer, wherever it might be, open it to the New Testament, find the Gospel of Matthew, it's the very first book in the New Testament, turn to chapter 5 and start in. And read it as an instruction manual on how to become good enough to get God to love you. And when your heart is devastated, because you quickly realize your own inability to actually do what Jesus said, Just take his first statement, his first challenging statement. You have heard it said, don't murder anyone. But I say to you, don't call anyone a fool or an idiot, or you will be in danger of the fire of hell. Anybody on the way to church today, caught in a roundabout, call somebody a fool? I mean, I dare you to read this sermon that way. And you will have three choices if you do. The first is just pitch the faith. Pitch Christianity, give up on Jesus and leave the church, which lots of people have done. And I do not recommend this. (laughs) I could get fired for just saying all that. The second choice you would have is to just fake it, right? Just pretend that you do everything that Jesus teaches here. I've never called anyone an idiot, never lusted. I always pray when I'm anxious. I never have hated my enemy. I never worry about tomorrow. My marriage is in a mess. Pretend you've never been divorced. Just pretend. How exhausting is that? But my friends, that's how some people see faith, see church. It's just a big old fat place to pretend. In fact, some church's motto somewhere could be Green Mountain Church, a place to pretend. I think it would become a mega church pretty fast. And the third option, if you read this as an instruction manual on how to get God to love you, is to just give up. It's just surrender. It's to just admit you can't do it. And strangely, this is exactly what Jesus wants you to do. Because in giving up and saying to him, I can't do this, we find the power to begin to start to live out his challenging teachings. Not in an effort to get God to love us more by getting gooder, but by recognizing that we are desperate for grace. And he'll give it to us in abundance. Over and over again, his empowering grace. And we'll realize we no longer have to work to get God to love us. But through Jesus and because of his grace, our sin problem is taken care of, our death problem, our eternity problem, all the problems. Jesus manages them through grace. And so we begin to trust him with life. And we begin to trust him to teach us how to live life in light of his grace. And that is what this sermon is about. So read it this summer, my friends. Engage it. Practice living it. But only do it with grace as your fuel. Agreed? Agreed? (laughs) You guys are all like, 
So a couple things I want to talk about this morning. I want to say this. The very first line, the opening line of Jesus' teaching, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That statement is our touch point this summer. Okay, that is our north star that will keep pointing us to grace. And if we risk interacting, if we risk missing that or not reading that or not understanding its power, we risk interacting with this sermon in a dangerous way. Again, Frederick Bruner said this, the Sermon on the Mount begins with almost unqualified mercy. The power of the rest of the sermon flows from this beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you and I tend to think that it is the spiritually rich, spiritually rich, who are blessed by God. I think if we had to write the first beatitude, it might read, Blessed are you who are super spiritually snappy and awesome and know it. Don't you think? But Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying those of you who are blessed are those of you who know you are spiritually inadequate. Anybody in here? Ever feel spiritually inadequate? Yeah, you can raise your hand. You, you can all just raise your hands. God's blessing to you. And this truth has become more and more real and important to me over these last almost two decades of teaching up front. People often say to me, kind of surprised, you're so real up front. You're so honest about your failures and your struggles and your faults. And I want to say to them, sometimes I say to them, don't you get it? (laughs) That's my link to Jesus. It's all I have. It's all I have to offer him. It's all I have to offer you. I'm just one beggar telling a bunch of other beggars where to go find bread. It's all I have is my spiritual poverty, my empty hands. This is my strong suit, okay? And whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, your own spiritual poverty is your strong suit too, not your spiritual richness. And the minute I stand up here proud of who I am and proud of how spiritual I am is the exact minute I step away from the grace of Jesus. And so do you. Blessed are you who are spiritually inadequate. So he starts this list of startling blessings before he moves into challenge, into instruction, which is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this summer looking at Jesus' instructions about how to live. And I want us to remember this principle. This is so compelling to me when I learned it. Again, Frederick Bruner says, he says, the purpose of every command in the Sermon on the Mount, is to drive its hearers back to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Every command in the Sermon on the Mount, taken seriously, drives believing readers back into the valley of the first beatitude and its life-giving springs. 
This is such a beautiful concept. The teaching that you and I are going to immerse ourselves in this summer is meant to drive us back to Jesus' grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit is your home base. Remember base when you were little? Maybe on a hot summer day like this and you played tag or hide and seek or whatever and, and you had that one place you could run to that, that when you got there you were safe? This passage, blessed are the poor in spirit, is your base. As we make our way through these challenging demands, when you fail, and you will, and when you feel guilt or shame or fear, run here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is your fueling station. This is your place to gulp down the grace of Jesus. And one final point, I want to look, I'm going to gulp down the grace of Jesus just a minute. One final point this morning, a really interesting passage, but part of what it does, one part of it that I'm going to look at, really deepens and clarifies our understanding of this sermon of Jesus. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. I really want to look at verse 20, but I'm going to read it in context. So I'm going to look at verse 17 through verse 20. This is what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then listen to this, for I tell you that unless your righteousness, your right living, your right status with God, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the first part of this section is confusing to readers, and it really demands its own teaching. I don't have time for that this morning, but it can be summarized this way. Jesus knew that he was going to be accused by the Jewish religious leaders of rejecting the Jewish law, of kind of pitching the law and not taking it seriously. But what he's saying here is that he is going to take the law even more seriously than the religious leaders of his day. He was going to interpret even more deeply than them because he is the one who created it. He is telling us in this section that he takes scripture seriously. And he urges his followers to do the same. He tells us he didn't come to abolish the law, but to actually fulfill it, which means to teach it and to live it in its deepest and truest meaning. And after that clarification, that is when he says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And I don't know about you, but if I were there listening and I had just heard blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, I would have heard this and said, wait a minute, what? Didn't you just say the poor in spirit, the spiritually inadequate would inherit the kingdom? 
And now you're saying you have to be both poor in spirit and have a righteousness greater than the most outwardly religious people I know? How can both of these things be true? Well, they can. And I want to just talk about three ways that righteousness can surpass the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and we can also hang on to our spiritual inadequacy. So the, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, if you remember, were the religious elite of Jesus' day. And they loved the Old Testament law. They were committed to it. They followed it to a T. They were uber moral. If anyone in the world was going to be considered righteous based on obedience to God's law, these dudes were it. So when Jesus announces to his ragtag group of followers and the dirty, dusty crowd of people who are listening to him that their righteousness had to surpass that of the religious leaders of the day, I bet they all thought to themselves, we're toast. We're burnt toast. So how can righteousness surpass that of the most religious people? The only way this can ever happen is for Jesus to give us his righteousness, his own perfection and his own perfect relationship with the Father. To those who come to Jesus empty-handed, spiritually poor, Jesus gives us, freely gives us his righteousness Handed to you and to me. I love, there's several passages, but Romans 3, especially verses 21 and 22, Paul writes, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. He's talking about Jesus. And this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. This is the ultimate righteousness that surpasses that of the most religious of people. Jesus takes his perfect righteousness and he hands it to those of us who will open up our hands and accept it. And this is what is known by scholars as passive righteousness. Meaning it's not something that we do. It's not something that we earn. It is not something we scramble to keep a hold of. It is merely something we receive. We open up our spiritually empty hands and Jesus gives it to us as a gift. Now that was good news. But there is something, and this is important for us to understand too, as we understand Jesus' teaching here. There's something that flows out of passive righteousness. It is what is called active righteousness, meaning it is something that we can do. And there's at least two forms of active righteousness I want to point to this morning. And the first of this is, is called, is humility. Humility is the first act of active righteousness, there's this parable that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, where he talks about a Pharisee entering the temple. And a Pharisee, remember, the most religious of the religious. And a tax collector also enters the temple. A tax collector was a loser, a liar, a cheater. And they both went to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee prayed like this, Thank you, God, that I am not like those other people. Like those robbers and bad people and cheaters. Or like that tax collector over there. 
I do all the right religious things, God. Aren't I awesome? Aren't I righteous? That is sometimes us, you know, in this world. Sometimes we get super proud of our own behavior. But that is not the righteousness Jesus wants. Thinking our own good behavior, even religious behavior, earns us God's favor is the righteousness of the Pharisee. It's self-righteousness. So back to the story. Jesus said, but the tax collector stood far away and he couldn't even look up. And he pounded his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And to beat your chest, to pound on your chest in Jesus' day was something only women did when they were mourning, when they were in grief. It was so humble, so humiliating that a man would never do it. That's how broken this guy was. That's his level of spiritual poverty. No real man would ever have beaten his chest. And I love stories like this where Jesus throws in something so unexpected to make a point. The tax collector reminds me of this guy who comes to the sportsplex in downtown Waterloo to my women's exercise class at 9 a.m. on Tuesdays. And he goes right in the front row with all these middle-aged women, this big, big young guy. His name is Preston. I love him the most. And he just rocks the exercise class. I mean, he's working out, he's lifting weights and stuff. And then we get down to do these, you know, women do these like booty exercises. I'm sorry. And then Preston just dies and cries and he crawls out. But he's humble enough to do booty exercises with middle-aged women. Back to the story. Sorry for that visual. Um, Jesus ends the story by saying, this tax collector, this liar, this cheat, this spiritual loser, not the religious Pharisee, goes home right with God. For those of you who think you are a spiritual big deal, Jesus says you are not. And for those of you who know you are spiritually poor, you are actually rich in my father's eyes. The crowd must have been dead silent with shock. I'm going to skip the next slide. Jesus wants humility to flow out of his people because we understand any righteousness we have comes from him, not from our own good behavior, however good it is. Remember that as you read the Sermon on the Mount this summer. And the second kind of act of righteousness is what the majority of the Sermon on the Mount is about, the rest of it. And that is love of our neighbor. Jesus elevates the Ten Commandments here. So it's no longer don't murder your neighbor, but don't even feel hatred toward them. It is no longer don't commit adultery, but don't even look at a woman with lust. She's made in God's image. It's no longer just love people who love you, but love even your enemies. It's no longer judge others rightly, but don't judge others at all. And this is where the Pharisees get it wrong and where we get it wrong sometimes too. They thought if they just obeyed God to the letter and avoided sin and avoided sinful people, it wouldn't matter how they treated people. But Jesus said, here is the law and all of the commandments. Love God and your neighbor. 
He even says it in the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew chapter 7. I just noticed this, especially this morning. He says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This is the ball game. So when we start to think, well, if I just come to church and read my Bible, and maybe like Alice said, read the Sermon on the Mount, if I just avoid sin and sinful people, Lord knows how bad they are. Thank you, God, I'm not like those people. Then God will be pleased. But no, Jesus rebukes the idea that all that matters to God is our own pious and correct religious behavior. He reminds us in this whole Sermon on the Mount, as you look at it about how we're supposed to live with other people, that as James says, I have this on the screen, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. It is an active form of righteousness to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So who do we need to be better than according to Jesus? We need to be better than the most religiously scrupulous people of his day. And how on earth do we do that? By recognizing our spiritual poverty. By coming to Jesus with empty hands. By accepting his gift of righteousness given to us freely. And by living in humility and love of our neighbor. It's a hard race, my friends, I'm not going to lie, this thing called the Christian life, but it is so good. And grace is our only fuel, and we're going to run together this summer. Let's pray. God, I think many of us feel in our heart, sometimes, how does Jesus want us to live? And we get a lot of messages from the culture about how Christians are supposed to live, God. But right here, right now, right this summer, together as a church, you're giving us the opportunity to dig into your son's teaching on both grace and challenge. And so help us, God, to run this race together this summer, to engage your word, and to live constantly with our touch point, our north star, which is that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen.